Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not replace your own financial, tax, legal, or financial product advice. Hello, Australia, and welcome to My Millennial Property. Emily Wallace here with John Pigeon. A lot of requests have come through in the Facebook group to get a property valuer on the show. A lot of people are wondering what they do when they come into play and little tips and tricks around valuing properties. So we're very lucky that we have Callum Howe from Heron Todd White joining us today. We're about to get stuck into it. If you are not a member of the Facebook group, you very well should be. Jump onto Facebook and just type My Millennial Money. You'll see the group there where you can ask questions and request guests for future episodes. But for now, let's get into it. So, Callum, welcome. You're a residential property evaluator in Sydney. Tell us about your journey. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Um, yeah, so look, I'm 31 now. I moved to Sydney uh, when I was 18 uh, to study property economics. Um, completed that degree and got a got a graduate role at Heron Todd White, um, and I've been there ever since, just sort of working my my way up, really. So it's been an interesting ride, that's for sure. Awesome. Yeah. So Emily, let's maybe start by just talking about the role of a valuer. And then we've, we've got, as you mentioned, lots of listener questions that we want answered today. So we'll get to that as well. But uh, conceptually speaking, a valuer plays a role when you go and purchase a property um, or if you want to sell a property or if you want to refinance a property, we need to get an independent valuation. So generally speaking, a real estate agent's appraisal it will not suffice for the bank. They want to lend on something a bit more rigid than that. So that's where they would engage the, the services of a Heron Todd White or a CBRE or an Odeon or something like that, that uh, is, a, is a panel that they can choose from to go and get a valuation done. Correct. And I think the biggest thing to explain to listeners is when a value actually comes into play. So when you look at the concept of buying property, most likely you're either going through a private sale that might have a subject to finance clause. And part of that subject to finance clause is actually having a valuation of the property take place. That can't take place until you actually have a contract of sale with a purchase price on that contract and then a valuation is ordered. Um, and we'll get into specifics about desktop valuation versus in-person and all that sort of stuff as we go through this episode. But at a high level, that's what it is. When you actually go to an auction where it's an unconditional purchase, evaluation still takes place. And a lot of people don't understand this, that the property still has to be valued. It may just be a slightly different way that it's valued because of the nature of the sale. Um, and Callum, keen to pick your brains on that. But a property valuer is essential in the whole transaction of buying and also refinancing a property. Callum, could you talk us through the process of what actually happens A bank contacts you to say, we're helping this client buy this house. Here's the contract. What do you then do? 
Yeah, so look, we received the instruction from the bank. We obviously scheduled the appointment with the homeowner or the real estate agent. Um, we then have to go through and inspect the property to see what it is that we're, that we're looking at. Um, so, you know, we take some notes and measurements and, uh, and work out what it is that we're looking at when we're at the property. Um, and then that's the easy part of the job, essentially. The hard part is when we come away, we do all the research. Um, we essentially have to position the subject property within a spread of sales that have occurred in the market of late. Um, obviously, no two properties are identical. So we're trying to quantify the the variables between those properties. You know, maybe something's got a swimming pool and we can say this is better by X dollars and something's on a small block of land and we can say, well, this is not as good by X dollars. Um, and, and by working out what's superior and inferior within the marketplace, we can position the subject property within those sales and, and work out what it you know, sh- should be selling for. Um, and in instances where there's a contract in place, obviously the banks are looking for us to validate that contract price and you know tick the box and they're, they're moving on then with the, with the finance process. Um, in refinance instances, you know, we can go somewhere that hasn't sold for a decade and then we have to look quite in depth at sales evidence and statistics and what's going on within that marketplace to position it accurately for the banks to then use that information to lend on. So, Callum, a valuer's name is brought up uh, a lot of the times when the valuation is not in their favour. So they say, oh, the valuation came in low and now I have to tip in more funds or it's a, it's a game changer and I'm actually going, not going to purchase this property. And it's probably more common for situations where it's a little bit more unknown, like maybe house and land estates where there's, there's not, uh, not real comparable sales right now because at the moment it's just sitting there as a paddock. Right? Can you talk to us about how you go about valuing situations like that? Yeah, well, look, we, we obviously can't make sales evidence up. We have to use what is available to us. Um, and if that means going a little bit further afield or a bit further back in time, then we have to do that. We, we have um, agreements and with the banks and you know, rules and regulations that we've got to adhere to as registered valuers. Um, so, look, we generally, if there's a contract in place, we are trying to validate that contract for you. It's our job to make the deal, not break the deal, you know. Um, but there are instances where there's no evidence available or it is obvious to us that, you know, this, there's a premium being paid f- for whatever reason. And, you know, at the end of the day, we have to say what our professional opinion is based on the evidence of what that property is worth. Um, so, look, there are instances where things do come in under contract price, but in my experience, they're not that common. It's just the ones that you hear about. They're, they're the bad stories that you yeah. that you hear, you know. Yeah, because it, it really is someone's opinion, isn't it? Like, and it's a professional opinion, uh, absolutely. But but John, Emily, and Callum are all uh, say registered valuers, and we all go out to the same house, and we all come back with a different figure. Uh, essentially, that's what's happening in valuation world, right? Yeah, look, it it, it, ha- it does happen, and it's it's a combination of factors. It's um, you know local knowledge and experience within the area, and how up to date that valuer is with with current market conditions and things like that. So, yes, it, it is a, um, an opinion. It's it's an art, not a science, really. Valuation. Just a question following on from that sort of train of thought. Andrew Park, who's chimed in in the Facebook group, has asked, if you're doing a valuation on behalf of a bank, and I'm assuming this is for refinance, not purchase, uh, is it a more conservative figure than what the property might actually sell for? So you're trying to, as opposed to having a contract with a figure, you're actually, you know, 
understanding what it's worth? Yeah, like, right. We do get this question a lot and it's because we are chasing the market, essentially. It depends which way the market is going. You know, if the market's going down and we're looking back at something that sold three months ago, those prices of things that sold three months ago may be a little bit higher. However, in Sydney, my particular area of expertise, the market's been screaming upwards quite consistently uh, until quite recently. Um, so, you know, we've been chasing those sales evidence, uh, those sales, and that evidence may be, you know, a few percent uh, less than what it's worth now. And then obviously, once you engage a real estate agent, you go through the marketing process, maybe another three months has passed since they've appraised it for you and the market's gone up a little bit more. Um, again, that's not happening in Sydney currently, but that has been happening over the last few years. So you mentioned um, timeframes there, Callum. How how far traditionally do you go back to look at comparable sales? Like I've heard six months as a, as a maximum. So anything outside of that's not taking into account. Is is that ring true? Yeah. Look, that's that's at a high level. That's true. Generally, six months is within our um, instructions from from the banks. If it's something that's a little bit more unique, if it's a higher value property or, or something unusual, you know, whether it's a, a company title or. Um, you know, sometimes even those house and land packages that are, you know, on the fringe areas of, of the city, um, we can go back a little bit further. But the aim is really we need a minimum of three within six months. Um, and ideally, I would probably use maybe five sales per, per report, sometimes six. And you'd want two or three of those to be within the last three months to get a really solid, accurate valuation. Sure. Okay. And, and if I'm not happy with that valuation, can I contest that? Yeah, you can. Um, if you've got a mortgage broker or a bank bank manager that you're that you're going to, you would go back to them and you would be able to contest it. But you would need to provide evidence of your opinion. You can't just say I don't agree with this. You would need to, you know, maybe the value was missed a sale on the street that you know about, or a sale a street over, or something like that. So if you just go back to um, your your broker or your bank manager, they can come back to the valuer and say, oh, you know, we think you missed this. Would you consider revising your report? Um, and then we can review and reassess if need be. Now, a question that's come through that's quite a funny one, but a also serious one, because I think many people are thinking it, um, but don't necessarily mm. ask it. So Gabe Weber has asked, does the valuer want the owner to hang around if they have questions to ask about the property or do they just want to be left alone to do their their work. They must get so sick of people talking their properties up, which I imagine you've experienced in your time, Callum. Uh, look, I say to everyone's home is their castle, right? So <laughs> I, I completely understand it. But I think the best thing to do, and, and often what I will, will tell homeowners, is that I will have a look around first and work out what it is that I'm looking at and do the bits of my job that I need to do in order to get you the best result. And then we'll have a chat at the end afterwards. You know, maybe there's something I've missed. Um, often I'll ask, you know, is there something I won't have picked up just by looking around you know people have underfloor heating things are automated stuff like that so that's the kind of stuff that i would um ideally like a homeowner to talk through with me at the end of the inspection when i've sort of familiarized myself with the house because a lot of people will walk in i will walk in and they will tell me straight away what do you think it's worth and give me, give me a second to catch a breath. So, so Brock Kemp, um, to that point, has said, "Well, does uh, leaving a six pack uh, on the on the couch does that help the, the result of the valuation?" Well, probably depends what uh, what style of drink you prefer, right? This this is very true. This is very true. <laughs> uh, there is a good question here from uh, Kalisha Miller. 
and to the point of like when you're just listing listing off underfloor heating and automation, all these things that people put into their own homes to make their life easier. But um, Kalisha has asked what minor things are worth doing that would increase the value and what's not worth doing. I feel like there's definitely situations where vendors have overcapitalized on renovations and things that are important to them may not add any value at all to their overall property. What are some things that you commonly see that don't add value and what are some things you see that definitely do? Yeah, look, so the things that that um, are fairly common that definitely do add value, it's going to be floor coverings, window coverings, light fittings, paint, you know, all that stuff. You get good bang for buck, good return. Um, and it cosmetically, it really does enhance the property. If it's an investment property, it'll improve your rental return as well. Yep. Um, look, in terms of things that don't necessarily add too much value, it's... <laughs> Every area is different, and it's hard to it's hard to pin down on certain things. Some areas can, um, some markets, more premium markets and affluent areas, really will pay for luxury items, whether that's uh, you know C bus and Bluetooth automation and all this kind of thing. If you go out to um, just more typical suburban areas, those kind of things would would definitely be considered overcapitalizing. Um, you know, uh, all the new sort of home subdivisions that we were talking about before that are a bit further on the fringe areas. People would probably rather you spend that money on a study or an extra bedroom rather than having everything automated, you know? Okay. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. And I guess it's preference, isn't it? Exactly right. So you mentioned at the start um, about swimming pools uh, and it was just in conversation. It was nothing deliberate, but... Uh, I personally had a valuation where because we had a swimming pool in, the valuation went down, not up, because the the block was no longer subdividable. Can you talk to the listeners about that? Yeah, okay. So that's obviously looking at the potential of the block. It depends, again, on the, the market and the area that you're in. Um, you know, there's certain parts of Sydney where it's quite valuable to have a parcel of land that could be subdivided into um, potentially a duplex pair type site. Um, obviously, if you're putting a, a pool in, that is going to make that more difficult. It's still possible, but you would have to spend more money to be able to, to do that. You'd have to fill in the pool and you're you're taking out something that you've spent quite a lot of money to, to put in. So why is someone going to pay more for that if the better use for that block of land is going to be to be chopped in two and have two houses put on it? But again, that is very area specific and not all parts of the country would, that market wouldn't operate the same, you know? Yeah, sure. Okay. We're going to take a quick break, but we've got plenty more questions for you. Uh, so we'll be back in just a moment. If you're after personal financial advice, don't get it from a podcast. If you would like help based on your own personal situation, head over to sortyourmoneyout.com. Click get help and we'd be happy to introduce you to one of our trusted advisors. We also have a panel of trusted mortgage brokers we can connect you with to get you into your first home, an investment property purchase, or to review your current loan if you don't have a broker. Our panel of advisors, mortgage brokers, and accountants work with clients all over Australia so they can connect with you wherever you are. That's sortyourmoneyout.com and click get help. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. 
Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Okay, so Jenny Bowdage, uh, what's the difference between all the valuation types? So uh, from my understanding, we've got desktop, curbside and full valuation. Can you elaborate on those three? And if I'm wrong, just uh, correct me. Yeah, no, look, they are they are the main three that the banks use. So a desktop is um, essentially, it's a very high level valuation. We're not going into the property. We're just doing it from our desk. We get the address. We can, um, you know, we have a system that we share with the banks. We're just sticking a few sales in there, which we feel are most relevant. Um, and then putting a figure on it and it goes back to the bank. Typically, those valuations are used when it's quite a low LVR. So, you know, individuals are not borrowing too much. Um, and, and the banks are just essentially checking on the value of that property and on that, that customer serviceability. Um, a curbside, they've definitely become less common. Um, they are more, the desktops tend to be more favoured now in, in, um, in over a curbside. But that's, certain banks like us to drive by um, and take a picture from the outside, essentially, to make sure the house is still standing. And then it's a similar thing to the, the desktop in that within the system, we just put in a few sales and give them a range. Um, you know, it could be worth between 800000 and a million kind of thing. And then that gets sent back to the bank. Um, a full evaluation is uh, where we would go inside and do an internal inspection. We're taking the notes and measurements and things, as I as I mentioned at the start of the podcast, um, and and having a conversation with the owner essentially. And those are more the instances where people are looking at higher LVR. They're maybe doing bridging finance or more complicated things with their loan setup. If you do like go through a refinance process and it's just been a um, a default of a desktop value or even maybe when you're buying it's been a, a default of desktop if it isn't really in your favor or you think it might be worth more if someone actually cites the property can you specifically request someone to come out to your home or is it just determined by the loan to value ratio as to what's actually required Look, all the banks have their own um, have their own rules and regulations. Heron to White, we're on the panel for all the lenders, so I'm not across what every single one would would do. Um, there are quite a few instances where initially a desktop valuation is done, and then even if it comes in at or above the customer estimate. I'll still then go out to the property again because a second request comes through for a full inspection, you know. And I think it's up to the homeowner to speak to their broker or bank manager about what it is that is necessary and what it is that they that they want. Um, generally, a obviously a desktop is not going to account for if you've done any recent renovations or things like that. We're looking at photos that are online, and that might be from the last time it sold three years ago, and you know you've done all those cosmetic things that I was mentioning before and then it's probably worthwhile getting a value through and if need be I would request one to come through in that instance. So this is out of my interest and and probably no one else's but I'll ask it anyway. Um, Lenders mortgage insurance territory so you're borrowing at 90% 
loan to value ratio, uh, you need to pay lenders mortgage insurance, which means you need to go off to an insurer to basically tick off on that deal uh, to to cover the banks for for you lending uh, more money. Do they need to cite your valuation that you've provided to the bank or do they actually go and do an independent valuation? Um, so they are, as far as I know, they will not do their own valuations. I'm fairly aware that they will cite ours. There's uh, Genworth and QBE are the two big insurers, um, and we have clauses for all of them within our reports, so they can use those. Um, but yeah, obviously with with the LMI, that's that's when you are borrowing at quite a high a high LVR, um, and yeah, that's all sure. I can say on that really. Mm. Um. Interesting question that's come through from Paul Turner, and it's probably uh, situation-based, I guess, in that Paul's asked, with the pivot of the working from home environment, um, would a house that has a home office slash studio study um, be add more value? Like, are, are studies becoming like a tick box item now that maybe adds more value to a home? Yeah, definitely. Look, obviously, um, the pandemic's changed the way that everyone's been been working. Um, and there's a lot more people working from home, even me just going into people's homes, everyone's at home now. Um, so yeah, it, it is a it is a very market specific thing. But look, generally in the cities, from what I'm seeing uh, within Sydney, it, it's something that's become uh, a lot more desirable and would add value that extra space. Um, in terms of how valuers are accounting for that, as I said before, we're taking measurements and things when we're going around the house. So we are looking at the size of the overall dwelling as well as the configuration of the accommodation and the floor plan and things like that within our sales. So when we're comparing that property to other properties that have sold, obviously those that have uh, larger floor areas, better floor plans, or those study areas um, are going to be considered superior over those that are not. And that's, that's really showing within, within the sales at the moment. Mm, yeah, interesting that's assessment. There's so many questions here, Emily. This is gold stuff for the listeners. But um, <laughs> the the big one on people's lips is uh, a lot of us subscribe to Heron Todd White and wait with bated breath for the month in review that has just come out for the month of August. Um, the question here from Jake Baldwin, how do they come up with their property clock ranking? So every month for listeners that haven't seen it, there's a property clock that's sitting there and, and there's uh, towns and cities around the country that are positioned on, uh, on the clock at some stage. So if it's 9 o'clock, 8 o'clock, it, it might be in the growth period. If it's sitting at 1 or 2 o'clock, it's on the decline. So can you talk to us about uh, how we come up with those clock rankings? Yeah, look, so we've, um, we, we all have input into the month in review. Um, we all send our input off to our head office where we've got an analyst who sits through and puts it all together. Um, and they're obviously looking at, at um, statistics that are, that are going on um, across the country and, and basically positioning all those towns and cities on, on the clock, really. Um, so yeah, we get our data from places like CoreLogic, RP Data, um, who they they really capture a lot of those statistics and monitor it all and, and pass it out to to people like us, other property professionals. So yeah, that's that's how we're coming up with the uh, with the property clock information. Love it. Another question out of interest um, with the process of what happens uh, when you value a property. So you go and attend the property, you write up a report within 
the company or just generally for a property valuer, do you have to get it like cross verified with someone else or is it just uh, one person that does it? How does it sort of work from an internal point of view? Yeah, look, so there's there's different levels of um, qualification for, for valuers. If you're a junior valuer, you've only got one or two years experience, you're, you're limited in the, the price of things that you can value, uh, the types of properties that you can value, and all of your reports will get um, reviewed by a senior valuer or a, a director. Um, and then so you have a, a primary signature on that saying it's my opinion, and then you have a, a co-signatory saying we've checked this and we verify it. Um, if you are a fully, fully qualified valuer and you can value anything, um, generally assets below a certain dollar value, which varies from area to area, you can just send those off yourself. There's, there's no cosign on that. If it's over a certain level um, and you know it's deemed a more complex valuation, then it still has to be cosigned by a senior valuer or by a director who is of a, another, like a level above you or experience level above you. Yeah. That makes sense. You may not know the answer to this one, Callum, but uh, Celia Thornton says probably more of an observation. I had a Val come back the other day at 410000 but recommended insurance of 800000 How on earth did we get there? Um, so obviously insurance is out of your control. The valuation is in your control, but yeah, what... Any correlation there? Yeah, so look, the the insurance that I'm assuming she's referring to is what is known as replacement insurance. So the valuation might be 410000 um, but the replacement insurance is looking at what the rebuild cost for that property would be. So in the same way that a car depreciates, house houses, buildings depreciate as well with use and over time. So it could have been, you know... A, a solid double brick home, which is quite a high rate per square meter to build. Um, and in today's environment with high building costs, that's how we've got to a higher, much, much higher replacement figure than the actual dollar value of the home. The newer the home, the more similar those two figures should be in theory. Interesting. Yeah. Cause I mean, it's uh, it's a big variance, isn't it? To know that, yeah, it must be a pretty rundown double brick veneer to have that look uh, it, it could be or it could be that it's in a, a remote area or somewhere that's very difficult for in terms of site access and the construction costs would be um you know quite quite high um i'm not sure what what part of uh, of the world she's in but yeah. um yeah I, so i couldn't comment on that but look it, there, there will be a variance between those two figures and as i said the, the newer the home the more standard the home um the, the more similar those two figures between the difference between the improvements figure and the replacement insurance figure should be. Mm, cool. Just a sort of closing question, I guess, for um, listeners who have an interest in property and property valuations and that whole space in terms of a career, what's the pathway to get to, you know, like where you are um, as a full-time career? What does that look like from um, a study perspective and a qualification yeah, right. I get this is a very common question as well, because um, obviously property is something that interests a lot of people. But yeah, like, I, so I, I studied property economics, um, and that's a degree at uh, the University of Technology in Sydney. Um, there is a few other degrees across the country you can do that are all varieties of that. Um, so another one is uh, it's business majoring in property at uh, the University of Western Sydney as well. Um, so generally, once you've finished that course, that allows you to start the path to becoming a qualified valuer. So you have to do uh, essentially a year's worth of 
work experience in evaluation firm first. So for me, that was assisting my directors, you know, being the coffee boy and doing the photocopiers, like runs and all this kind of stuff and, and going out with them and, you know, assisting them at valuations and building that that experience then you sit a professional interview with the Australian Property Institute and you are a uh, certified as a, as a junior valuer then um, so that's as I was saying before you still need all your work signed off and there's caps on the, um, the, the value levels that you can go up to and things like that um, after you've done that for a year you sit another professional interview and submit examples of your work and then if they ratify you, which hopefully they do, then you're fully qualified um, and you can go off and, and start your career as, as a fully qualified valuer. So there's a few things to meet. Like it's not like you just get the qualification and off you go. It's actually good to hear that there's someone stepping in there with those professional interviews to make sure like you're legit because it's quite a big thing. Like valuing property is not easy number one. But number two, you're also dealing with very high dollar values that can impact people's lives and livelihoods. So it's good to hear that there's actually some steps in, even though it might be a bit frustrating or, you know, a bit time consuming to get there. Um, it means that the industry is held to a certain standard, which is really refreshing to hear. Exactly right. And look, I, I think I would recommend anybody that is interested in doing it, that is interested in studying something related to it, try start, like get a job as, as early as you can, get that year's experience, maybe in your last year of university, you can start doing it part time. Um, obviously, all the all the valuation companies know what's needed, so they will work around it and work with you to um, to make sure that those qualifications are met. And um, look, parent and wife have been been very very good to me, and I mean I've really enjoyed my my time there. So I, I think as well, it's also the reason why re- like real estate agents, as you mentioned at the start, they're they're not able to give the the legally binding. Uh, level of advice that we are Um, we don't just do work for banks we do private work we do tax depreciation stuff we do work for lawyers and accountants and things like that as well so it's a whole bunch of uh, of different things that we cover Um, and yeah so that that's why that that certification is needed essentially Mm. yeah look it's pretty important because uh, you're you're uh Responding to the to the banks and they're lending a heap of money, as you mentioned, Emily. So you've you've got to get that right, and and you probably say that you would err on the side of caution when you perform evaluation just to to be safe. Is that a fair statement? Uh, look, again, we have to go off the sales evidence, um, but like in an instance where there is a contract price in place and we're verifying that contract price, the value is not going to go over it. Like the, the very definition of market value is that agreed price, you know? Yeah. So uh, it's we're not going to go over a contract price and, and essentially we're taking on the bank's the bank's risk that is the valuer's job that's what we're paid for um reassuring them and and managing their risk so we are not going to take more risks than need be yeah and and thinking in these times emily we chat about getting equity out from that first property to go and buy that second property or or do some renovations or whatever it may be uh you, you want to be getting a valuation at a time where valuers like yourself, Callum, are jumping out of bed because the market's buoyant and, and the, the valuation comes in maybe uh, higher than we expected at, at that time so that the equity that we, we can pull out is is going to be greater than, say, a market downturn where, where we're all scared because of the media hype. Yeah, look, the timing, the timing is important. If you can manage the timing as well, that's, that's something that I would, um, would recommend, like, uh, maybe when something else in your building or on your street 
that's very similar to yours has sold recently. So that valuer has something to go off of. Often people will, will see, oh, what that sold for that? Okay. And then they, they do go about that process of pulling out the equity and then trying to, to get that, um, that second investment property or holiday home, whatever it might be. So yeah, look, the, the timing is important. I understand that's not something that's possible for, for everybody, but it does give us something to go off of and will get you a more accurate valuation that's more likely to be in line with everyone's expectations. Yeah, and, and do you need to see that sale, like the example you gave in the building, do you need to say, uh, see that in RP data, for example, or can you just see a sold sticker and say, yep, now we can use that now? Well, look, often when we're doing the inspection, we would see the sold sticker first and we'd be like, right, okay, mental note for that. Um, Sometimes if it's very, very recent, it won't be in RP data, it won't be online yet. But if you've seen the signboard, you know who sold it. Um, We can call the agents. We are able to use sales that are advised to us as being under contract. Um, We do have to have um, settled sales within our reports as well, a minimum of three settled sales within six months. Um, But we can use those advised sales too. Um, And they're particularly useful for us to determine uh, where the market is at this time, you know, because those advice sales, obviously, they're within that that cooling off period between exchange and settlement or whatever it might be. Um, they, they give us that up to date, up to the now um, market information. Mm, that's great. Awesome. It's been a pleasure speaking with you, Callum. It's funny, John and I, uh, we haven't necessarily crossed paths with valuers because we're the ones that wait for the valuation to come back and make sure that it's at contract price uh, at best. Um, But it's been really interesting to understand, you know, your day-to-day work, how you've gotten to where you are and what the industry is all about. I think it's been a really insightful episode and these episodes only come about when members of our community request a particular uh, profession to come in and speak with us that is property related. So shout out to all those people who did ask us to get a valuer on. It's been a long time coming and um, very grateful for Callum to share his knowledge with us today and his time as well in answering all the questions that we have had. So thank you so much. We really, really appreciate it. That's okay. Thanks very much for having me guys. Yeah, no, no pleasure, worries. Callum. Just, just a, a closing question on a more of a personal note. Are you a, a residential property investor? Are you, uh, you, you buy and hold long term? What's, uh, what's your strategy as a valuer? Yeah, look, I, I am a residential property investor. I've got two of my own at the moment, and it is a, it's a buy and hold for a long term, hopefully for an early retirement or at least early part time. Not that I don't love my job, but that's <laughs> <laughs> love it. Very good. Uh, Excellent. All right. Well, thanks again. And uh, thanks to all the listeners for tuning in once again. Hopefully that's been of some value. I definitely uh, got a couple of things out of it today. So that's um, that's awesome. Uh, If you want to check out our Facebook page, uh, what's it called? My Millennial Money. And, uh, and yeah, feel free to, to put anything in that you want to chat or us to chat about on, on the show as always. And if you're feeling pretty happy about what we do, then feel free to give us a review, hopefully a five. Um, but otherwise, we will chat to you again soon. Until then.
We acknowledge the Awabakal people, traditional custodians of the land on which our studio sits, and pay respects to their elders past, present and emerging. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to our podcast. Taking your property journey to the next level starts with education. That's why we make this podcast, but we've also created online courses to equip you with the knowledge you need to take the next steps. I've created the Solvair Online Academy, open to both first home buyers and seasoned investors, where I share my tips and experience from 20 years in the property space. And if you're a first home buyer, I have the course just for you. Everything from pre-approval all the way through into your settlement and everything in between. How to place an offer, how to bid at auction, what to even look for at an open home and what questions to ask the agents. It's all covered in my online course. Follow the links in the show notes to sign up and get started today. This podcast is for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general financial advice only, which does not take into account your objectives, financial situation, or needs. Because of that, you should consider if the advice is appropriate to you and your needs before acting on the information. If you do choose to buy a financial product, read the product disclosure statement, target market determination, and obtain appropriate financial advice tailored to your needs. Simo Interactive Proprietary Limited, the publisher of the podcast, and Glenn James are authorized representatives of Money Sherpa Proprietary Limited, which holds financial services license 451289. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.